Our world knows a lot about love. Just ask them. Just ask any pop star from the last 60 years about love, and they will gladly expound on everything they know. They will tell you that it is more than a feeling, that love will keep us together. They will explain a crazy little thing about love. They will proclaim that they will always love you and that you make love and fun. They will turn it around and ask, how deep is your love? How deep is your love? I really mean to learn because we're living in a world of fools breaking us down when they all should let us be. We belong to you and me. The world will also complain. They will say that love bites that you give love a bad name, and that love is blindness. The world will also, at least in one case, claim that they would do anything for love. They won't do that. In 1984, however, a song hit the airwaves that continues to resonate with people. I've got to take a little time, a little time to think things over. I better read between the lines in case I need it when I'm older. This mountain I must climb feels like a world upon my shoulders. Through the clouds I see love shine, keeps me warm as life grows colder. In my life there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to know what love is. I know you can show me. Lou Graham, the singer of that song, he later said this. He said, I would say that throughout the mid-80s, late-80s, early-90s, I was on the fringe. I was doing some shopping, spiritual shopping. I got an earful and an education about New Age spirituality, etc. That left me cold. I really was searching in those years. Through the years, some very dear friends of mine began to attend a non-denominational church in Rochester, New York. I really found what I was looking for, a real come-as-you-are type of attitude, really steeped in the Word and the Scriptures and the teachings that are applicable to today's life and the world that we're living in now. I just found what I was looking for, a real sense of well-being and being a follower of Jesus. I think that everything that I had been up to, uh, through up to that point in my life led me up to where I finally made the commitment and accepted Him as my Lord and Savior instead of just being a part-time, get-me-out-of-trouble God. Our world authoritatively claims to know what love is, yet it is in fact grasping at straws, is it not? The world is equating fornication, adultery, and other types of immorality with love. But that's not the case. In fact, that's the opposite of love. But what if the world turned to us as Christians and said, I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me? What do we do? Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul addresses in this next section of our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. So turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and let's just read this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
The Apostle Paul writes, actually I'm going to start right in the end of chapter 12, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love let's stop and pray lord i pray that um, that you would feed us today give us what we need i pray that any anything um, extraneous anything that is not from you that we would just forget and Lord, that we would remember and cling to the promises of God. That we would love because Christ first loved us. Conform us to the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, I've been a committed user of the English Standard Version of the Bible for many years. That's what I preach out of. That's what I just read. But every once in a while, I come across a verse or a passage that just doesn't seem quite right. It's not that it's a bad translation, don't get me wrong. It's not that it's inaccurate or misrepresents the original language of the inspired word. It's just that there are other versions that that might get the nuance of the passage across to us better in English. And that happens a few times in this section. In fact, maybe you noticed it as I was reading it. Um... Probably the biggest distraction in this, for me at least, is that this is such a well-known passage of Scripture. It's one of the most well-known of all of the books of the Bible, all passages of the Bible. It's so well-known that when the words are used that aren't quite what I remember from my childhood King James Version days, it trips me up a little bit, right? I don't know if that's the same with any of you, but it does that for me. That's why when I, whenever I quote John 3.16, I, I have to stop and quote it in the King James, or I will mess it up. But the first place where this translation could be better is right here in that last line of chapter 12. Now, we also need to keep in mind that the chapter and verse divisions of the, the Bible are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were added much later. Overall, we are very thankful for the chapter and verse divisions. They They certainly make studying the Bible easier, finding things easier. But as we look at this one little sentence, the last line of chapter 12, we need to see two things. First, 
Paul is about to show them the more excellent way of love. So he sets up there, at the, that last line, sets up the next chapter, chapter 13. But a, a more literal translation of this verse, this sentence, would be this. I am showing you a still more excellent way. Meaning that, that everything that Paul has been writing to them all throughout this letter including what he's about to say about love in chapter 13, is more excellent. Everything that he's been saying is more excellent than the way that they've been living, the way that they've been treating one another with their factions and, and their divisions and, and their general just kind of all-around selfishness. I am showing you a still more excellent way. And it's certainly true that the, the way of love is a more excellent way. It's even more excellent, as he has just been talking about in chapter 12, it's even more excellent than the desire to participate in, in what is called the higher gifts, or the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, and, and then not to mention the working of miracles and speaking in tongues. As we might expect, um, after this discussion of spiritual gifts, um, and church membership really in chapter 12 that we looked at a few weeks ago, we might expect Paul to move on to the next question that they've written him, which is actually about the collection, the offering. And he picks this up in chapter 16. Or we might expect him to explain a little bit more fully the, the foreign ideas that these so-called sign gifts bring up, especially the issues that arise from speaking in tongues. We know when this first appeared, this gift speaking in tongues, when it first appeared in Acts chapter 2, that it was uncommon and it was even strange. The apostles were accused, the Christians were accused of being drunk. And he's going to come back to teach about this in chapter 14. But before he does, Paul seems to interrupt himself to, as one author put it, wax eloquent on the superiority of the way of love. It's telling that this topic, love, it falls in the midst of these teachings about spiritual gifts. If you look at chapters 12 and 13, remember this is a letter, so he's just writing them a letter. If you look at chapters 12 and, and 14, you can see that Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, but right in the middle he interrupts that thought to talk about love. Paul seems to put this here as a way of probably of diffusing what could be a, a contentious topic in an already uh, split apart or factious church. In fact, all along, Paul has been seeking to unite this church that was full of divisions and cliques. But I need to point out that while Paul calls love the greatest at the end of the chapter, and that a lifestyle of genuine Christian love is, as he says, a more excellent way. Love is not what he would call of first importance, at least not love for one another. Now, see, those on the more progressive side of Christianity or even the world will tell you that love is the highest and the best without ever really defining love, right? Right? They will say, love is love, which is not a definition, by the way. That's a slogan. And it makes as much sense as saying, car is car, right? 
They will say that love is being open and affirming and accepting people just the way that they are, whereas the Bible defines love like this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know that propitiation is a big word, but it's a word you should know. It means this, averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. It refers to the the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment for our sin by God's own provision of a sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Propitiation is what Jesus did on the cross. He bore the wrath of God and removed our sin. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. But listen, Paul Paul does not tell us that love is of first importance. Rather, he tells us in the opening verses of chapter 15 that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is of first importance. Because we humans would have no concept of love whatsoever without the Son of God going to the cross for us. We would have no idea what love is or looks like without Jesus going to the cross for us. For I delivered to you, Paul writes, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." See, this chapter here that we're on today, chapter 13, it's not just simply a a pleasant diversion designed to give the Corinthians something to read at their weddings. Instead, Paul is building on and toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for his people. John, who is sometimes called the apostle of love, writes in his first epistle, his first letter, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Then a few verses later, John writes in verse 23 of that same chapter, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And so as we remember the context of this important and well-known chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we understand that love means that the church is concerned with obeying God's commands in caring for one another and building up the body of Christ. Remember that, that Paul said about spiritual gifts, just up in chapter 12, verse 7, he said, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He uses that phrase for the building up of the body of Christ in talking about spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. And so as we build one another up through the exercising of our spiritual gifts, we need to follow a more excellent way, the way of love. And so as we look here at verse chapter 13, we can see a a natural division actually in the four paragraphs of this chapter. The last paragraph is really just that one sentence in verse 13 where Paul sums up his point. But for this morning, I want to look at just the first two paragraphs. And I would summarize the first paragraph, verses 1 to 3, by saying love authenticates. 
Love authenticates. Listen again to the first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nothing. It should be clear from Paul's argument here as he lays his case out that he's not presenting an an either-or scenario. He's not saying either you have these particular gifts or you have love. In fact, from the beginning of this letter, he's already made the case that every Christian has been given, as he says, a measure of grace, a grace gift. Listen to the, this is verse 4 and verse 7 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. In verse 4, he says to them, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 7 of that first chapter, he says, So you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy to just read over that, especially that introduction in those opening verses, opening chapter. It's easy to read over it quickly um, and assume maybe he's simply talking about salvation only. I'm so glad that you have received the grace of salvation. But he says that Christians are not lacking in any gift gift of grace, including the gifts that we've been given in order to build one another up in love. We should also remember that Jesus declared in John chapter 15, verse 12, he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this isn't an either or. In fact, Paul is is bringing these things together, love and spiritual gifts, and he, he does so by making a rhetorical argument that builds to the point of absurdity in verse 3. Now, I don't mean that Paul is making an absurd argument. I mean that it would be absurd to do those things without love, right? That's what he's saying. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm just a, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, deliver up my own body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. In fact, no one can imagine, no one can imagine willingly sacrificing our own lives for people we don't love. Paul says, perhaps a good person would die for someone like that. Perhaps. Even a soldier who makes the ultimate sacrifice for people he doesn't know, he does so generally out of a a love for his country or or a love for the cause for which he fights, right? Probably a combination of the two. So here's the gist of Paul's argument. Spiritual gifts— Exercised in a context where love is missing, where self-interest is primary, where the greatest commandments are neglected, where status is sought after rather than humility pursued, they're not spiritual gifts at all. In fact, they make a person and his accomplishments to be nothing. He starts off by saying a clanging cymbal, a crashing gong. 
And then he says, nothing. Gain nothing. Just a noisy nothing, gaining nothing. Just random, annoying noise. This is, for example, the preacher who doesn't love his people rather scolds them every week. Now, sometimes we need scolding. Don't get me wrong, myself included. But the ministry should not be like the ministry of Jonah. Do you remember the results of Jonah's preaching? Nineveh repented. The whole city repented. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah hated the people to whom he was called to preach so much that he would rather die than see them repent, turn to God, and be saved. Now, in worldly terms, we would say that he was a skilled preacher. The whole city repented, every one of them. He got results. We also know and we can see that God used his preaching to do an astounding work in Nineveh, despite Jonah's lack of love. But do you know what, do you know what the Bible records about the rest of Jonah's life and ministry? Nothing. Nothing. God rebukes Jonah at the end of the book, and then nothing. Nothing. The book ends. Now, as we consider these, notice the gifts that Paul mentions in these first three verses. These are just examples. He's making a case that any Christian service divorced from love is unacceptable. So we might say something like this, if I were the world's most accomplished public speaker or preacher or the most astute theologian, but if I don't have love, I would be nothing. So in each of these arguments, Paul's actually exaggerating to make the same point. That means when he mentions tongues of angels, he's not talking about some secret angelic language. He's using hyperbole. It's the same as when he brings up understanding all mysteries and all knowledge or having this mountain-moving faith. We shouldn't get hung up on the, uh, on the gifts or the examples that he uses here because they're not the point. The purpose of spiritual gifts, the reason Christians have been given gifts is not for our own benefit, not for our own enjoyment, not for our own status, certainly. They have been given that we, so that we might demonstrate our own love for one another through our serving one another in the ways that God intended us to serve one another, through the various parts of the body from the previous chapter as we learned about. We could also say, based on this chapter, that love is 
kind of to put it this way, love is the prime fruit of the Spirit. Paul uses that kind of language, fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians. We could say that love is the prime fruit of the Spirit. And so the presence of love among believers in the church is proof that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are operating in the church. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he, when he said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not because Christians go around with flowers in their hair saying, I love you, but because we act out our love through selflessly serving one another. This is how love authenticates, authenticates our faith. And by the way, um, did you notice the third use of the law in this? In other words, can you see how God's law is given to guide God's people, Christians, into the good works that God has planned for them? Think of the law for a moment. What did Jesus say was the most important commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Jesus said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I want you to hear this very carefully. Those, those verses, that quote that I just quoted Jesus, that's, that's the law. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that because of his great love, Jesus fulfilled the law, and he paid the price for our transgression of the law, our failure to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. He paid the price for our transgression of the law, and then, and then he imputed, I'm throwing all the big words at you today, then he imputed his righteousness to us. And it is this that enables us to love God and love one another. It is this that enables us to fulfill the law that he fulfilled, to, to do the law, to be obedient to the law, because while we were still sinners, lawbreakers, transgressors, Christ died for us. Love authenticates our faith. Love also controls. Love controls. Look at verses 4 to 7 now. This is the passage that we think of when we think of chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul now describes here what love looks like. See, for Paul, for the Apostle Paul, love isn't merely theoretical or just some sort of uh, a, a theological category. In fact, love only has meaning if it can be seen in action, just like our discussion of faith over the past couple of weeks. Love only has meaning if it can be seen in action, right? In fact, I would argue, and, and so does Paul down in verse 13, that along with hope, faith and love are inseparable in the Christian context. They cannot be pulled apart. But as we look at this sort of famous paragraph here, 
Notice the verbs that Paul chooses to use to stress the action involved in Christian love. These are verbs. Um, At the same time, he is also stressing the characteristics of love that relate to the issues that he's been addressing throughout the letter. This is how you ought to act toward one another. You've not been acting this way, he tells the Corinthians, but you ought to be acting this way. He starts off by saying love is patient. In in the Old Testament, patience. Sometimes we might read the word forbearance, uh, long-suffering. It's seen as one of God's great attributes, especially when he has to deal with his, his sinful, wandering people. Consider, for example, in the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, and just to put your uh, mind on the timeline, Nehemiah takes place very near the end of the Old Testament era. So as they're coming back to the city, long after what we just read in in 2 Kings, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, there is a recounting of the history of the people of Israel, and it says this, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. John, John, tells us, John tells us that God is love, and love is patient. Do you know why God is patient? Do you, do you know why God is patient? Romans chapter 2, verse 4 answers for us. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Love is patient and kind, Paul says. Patient and kind, and it's meant, God's patience and God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to turn to him, turn from our sin and turn to God. Have you ever con, uh, considered the connection between love and kindness? It's probably an obvious connection. Um, but if we consider God's kindness toward us, we see his kindness most clearly in his mercy and his compassion, right? In fact, some versions will translate, especially when you read through um, there are many places in the Psalms, for example, they'll translate the words steadfast love with sometimes it'll say loving kindness. Same thing. Chesed. God's steadfast love, his loving kindness. So, for example, the Legacy Standard Bible, a new and excellent version, it puts Psalm 25, verses 7 and 8 like this. Psalm 25, 7 says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness... Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Here, Paul is exhorting us as Christians to be marked by this kind of Christ-like kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love. 
And then at this point, Paul lists after this uh, several assertions of what love doesn't do, what love isn't. Love does not envy or boast. Envy here literally means strive after. And so in this status-loving community in Corinth, where they want to be seen as being important in the, in the church and, and important in the city. They, they, they want church member or deacon or elder or something like that on their resume, right? Where they, where they want to be seen as being important. They were striving after prominence and control. But what does that kind of striving after or envy lead to? James tells us. James says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. And when they finally do get what they've been fighting for, what they've been striving after, they boast in it. But Paul has already confronted, actually several times through the letter, Paul confronts their boasting. He confronts them in chapter 3, chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, verse 6, he says it like this. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words... Because of your boasting, you're destroying your church. Sin is creeping in and taking over. And this really leads us straight to this next pair. He says, love is not arrogant or rude. Everything that we have, including our gifts of grace, right? Everything that we have are, is from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift is from above, Scripture tells us. And so when we boast that we have accomplished only what God can do, we are completely puffed up and we act rudely and it is unbecoming of one for whom Christ died. I, let me be, well, I try to be honest, let me be a little bit transparent. Sometimes I don't know what to do when people compliment preach, my preaching. Because I want to accept that compliment and say, oh yes, I did do a great job, didn't I? Right? That, that's what we want to do when we receive compliments. We want to, yeah, that, well, I did do a pretty good job. But I also, deep down, know who I am. I know that this is only by the grace of God that I'm standing up here. I know that more than I can explain to you. And you know that about yourself and the things that people compliment you for too, right? Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Paul already went through this really in chapters 9 and 10. Do you remember, um, it's been a while now as we looked at chapter 9 in particular, but do you remember Paul's explanation of the church's responsibility to, to fairly pay her, her ministers and yet his eagerness to give up that right? And then he says in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. He goes on here and says, love is not irritable. Some versions might say it is not provoked to anger. 
This one, it's actually a little bit difficult to translate into English. Um, and the reason is because that we know that God, multiple times in the Old Testament in particular, God was provoked to anger over sin. Typically, that anger was his people's idolatry. And so was Paul himself. Actually, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it uses the same phrase, that he was provoked to anger when he saw the idolatry. And so we need to keep in mind that this characteristic of love is, is not directed at people, it's, it's directed at people and, and not at sin. This is the opposite, we could say this. This is the opposite of patience and kindness. So when it says that we are not provoked to anger or irritable, it's not saying that if you, if you confront someone's idolatry, you should not be angry about it. Paul was angry and God himself was angry about it. It means the people shouldn't provoke you to anger because you're just an irritable person. The opposite of that being provoked to anger is that we are patient and kind. Love is not resentful, or some versions again will say, love keeps no record of wrongs. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 reminds us, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord keeps no record of wrongs. We can praise God. Romans 8.1 That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Because he keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs, doesn't grow in resentment. It's an indication of how all of these characteristics here hold together. That a person who is easily provoked to anger will likely also be one who keeps a record of all the ways that they have been wronged. And as they do this, they are in effect rejoicing at wrongdoing. Ooh, I get to add another thing that I have been wronged, another way that, that this woman has wronged me. Please don't look at my wife at the moment. Love rejoices in the truth. In the Bible, there's a contrast often between wrongdoing or evil and the truth. And that, that, that contrast is a common one. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 describes God himself using this contrast. If you can catch it here. Deuteronomy 32 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Now, wrongdoing here, as we read this in English, is technically a correct translation, but again, it's really not strong enough. It's evil. And when Paul makes this contrast between evil and truth, he's probably thinking of the truth being a capital T truth, a John 14 truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's thinking of God's enemies, those who are evil, who rejoice at evil, who are opposed to the truth. He's thinking of the gospel and all that is opposed to it. 
The one who rejoices at the truth is the one who sees God at work in and through the people of God and sees God being honored and obeyed in their actions and her, and her love for one another. And then on top of all this, Paul offers up four more things that love does. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, these four are obviously connected. In fact, the first and last, bears all things and endures all things, are are very similar, aren't they? You can see the connection between believes all things and hopes all things, belief and hope. And I I should point out that the word for all things can, can also be translated always, which makes a little bit more sense for those middle two, believes always, hopes always. Love isn't naive, believing everything it hears. That's not what it's saying. Rather, love puts up with persecution. Love puts up with burdens. Love puts up with jerks in the church. Love puts up with jerks outside the church. Love holds on during trouble and affliction. Love never loses faith, never loses hope. Love believes and clings to the promises of God. Do you know why? Do you know why this is true? Consider the words of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, Paul writes. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You want to know what love is? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so we also ought to love one another. Pray with me. Lord, even as we come to the table, we are reminded, even physically reminded, as we hold the bread and the cup, as we eat and drink, as we see the elements being passed, as we gather with the saints this morning, as we hear your word, as we sing your praises, as we offer offerings to you as we fellowship with one another, love one another, as we eat together in a few minutes, Lord, as we, as we gather as your assembly of saints, we are reminded of your great love for us. We can see and taste and feel your great love for us in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And so we don't presume to come to your table, Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, our own love, but in your great mercy. 
In fact, we are not worthy so much as to gather up crumbs from under your table, but you are merciful and gracious. And so, Lord, as we come this morning and we celebrate the breaking of bread, the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may feed on him in our hearts by faith and that we may be united to him and he to us with, who with you and the Holy Spirit are worthy of eternal thanks and praise. Lord, we, we eat and drink and so proclaim his death until he comes. We are reminded of the love of Christ, the love of God our Father who sent his Son and has given us your Spirit Lord, we pray that we would be transformed to Christ-likeness and that means that we would continue to love one another as Christ has loved us. That we would be willing to sacrifice for one another. That we would be willing to forgive one another. That we would be willing to care for one another. To build one another up. Father, it is our prayer that your name would be glorified not just in not just in our words, but in our actions today and our love for one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.